It's time for Talking Pictures Trivia. A quick friendly reminder, a CRT TV works by shooting electrons that are caught by phosphorus to make color. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Nathan Hanks. Thanks for joining us, Nate. Nate and KJ taught together in Japan. In between classes, Nate and KJ used to debate and philosophize over trivial matters and never really came to any conclusion. Nate is a co-host on the Five Fit podcast, which explores and digests pieces of fiction from a philosophical point of view. Google Nathan Hanks or FiFic for more information. Nate conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. Questions in the first round will be worth one point, and questions in the second round will be worth two points. Then we followed up with our famous movie rant, Where Anything Goes. KJ, tell us about today's movie. Today, we are going back to 2014 to start our Guilty Pleasures movie block. The first season of True Detective is released on HBO. Matthew McConaughey wins a Golden Globe. Jay Leno finishes his time on The Tonight Show. Russia hosts the Winter Olympics. Gangnam Style becomes the first video to reach 2 billion views on YouTube. And during all this, Christopher Nolan releases his ninth movie, Interstellar. Before Interstellar, Christopher Nolan released Memento, Insomnia, the Batman Begins trilogy, The Prestige, and Inception. Other movies you could have seen in theater with Interstellar include the first John Wick movie, Big Hero 6, The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 1, the third Hobbit movie, and American Sniper. In Interstellar, we spend the first act establishing that the world is failing, specifically that food is not growing as needed. We follow Cooper, played by Matthew McConaughey, as he is frustrated with being a farmer as he is a qualified pilot and engineer. His daughter Murph is seeing strange things in her room, which include coordinates being spelt out by falling dust. The coordinates lead Cooper and Murph to Michael Kine, who then explains to that NASA has been reformed and has been tasked to find a new home for humanity by exploring three potential planets on the other side of a wormhole. From here, we enter the second act and we go on adventures to a planet where the adversary is the environment in the form of tidal waves, then we go to a planet where the adversary is man in an attempt to find a suitable home. None of these new worlds seem to suit, and we spend the third act tying everything back to the beginning in a way that doesn't make that much sense at all. Nick, if you only had one word to describe Interstellar, what would it be? Anomaly. Tom? Exploration. Nate? Spiritual. And my word would be adventure. It's time for question one. How is Coop going to punish Murph for her insubordination in school? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, Nick, what do you have? They're going to the baseball game. Nate? I don't know, and I'm locked in on that. <laughs> Tom? You see, yeah, they're going to see the New York Yankees play, but I think was the A's, but I'm not sure. The green team. <laughs> All right. Points for Nick and Tom. Yes. So the movie starts off in a post-apocalyptic post, post -apocalyptic future, 
right? We're we're not in the apocalypse. That happened when Coop was growing up, I guess, and yet he was an engineer and a pilot, so that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now he's a farmer, but we're we're after that. It's the world is slightly healing, a little bit better, but still failing. And I'd never really seen this kind of environment. I really enjoyed it. It seems to be like a Malthusian environment, right? Where the, the it, Malthus is the guy who said that um, population grows at a greater rate than you can cultivate land to make food. And therefore there's a natural check on humans. And that, uh, Malthus is correct about this until, you know, people innovate and, you know, uh, land becomes plentiful or food becomes plentiful out of very little land. And it seems like whatever has happened, this anomaly that has caused the dirt to rise up, blah, 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 has made the Malthusian trap true. So there seems to have been a revolution in which lots of people died. And then they they hit a point of balance, right? A kind of natural equilibrium where everybody became a farmer. They just converted a ton of land into farmland. A bunch of people starved to death. And, and here we are in this somewhat settled dystopia. Um, you know, there seems to be, though, in this dystopia, unlike others, a real sense of hope, right? That, and I think that's not necessarily due to the world building of the Nolans. Um, I think it has to do with the fact that we're spending time with people who are, are very hopeful and very interested in exploration and won't let that go, namely Coop and Murph. Um, and, you know, we really don't see them ever in a state of desperation. It seems like when things are getting really bad, he's he's already off in space. I just want to make sure we're using the word settled correctly here, because I think there may have been a drop off and now we're on kind of a flat line, but the planet is still eroding. So there's this thing called the blight that is taking one crop at a time. So it's a temporary um, relief, if you will, but it's not sustainable. And that's why they have this project to give, unfortunately, false hope uh, to those who are on earth. But we're kind of in that in-between part before it goes to really hitting the fit. Before we get to Mad Max, you know, where everything is just desert and everyone's looking for guzzoline. Uh, we're, we're right before that. Yeah, I think that's a... Good. It's good to lock in on this world because the grandfather said something to uh, his son about repopulating the planet. So it also seems like there is a massive extinction event for humanity, that it's not, um, you know, simply things are changed as we know it. Um, but there's not many people left. Um, there's not armies uh, any longer. Yeah, there's barely a government, it seems. Right. It seems like the, the government they have... Um, all they can spare these old robots that used to be Marines, right? So it seems like the resources are really tight. And it does seem at some point there was a great die-off. They mention that NASA was decommissioned because they refused to bomb starving people. Mm, uh, you know, that's a good detail. They said that at one point. Yeah. And, and so, so it seems like, um, it, yeah, it just seems like there was a, a great dying off. And I think what, what you're saying, Nick, is... Um, is that, that this is happening from crop to crop, right? It's going from like wheat one year and now the last thing left is corn, which thank God is, the, you know, for them anyways, the most caloric um, or you can transform it into the things that are most caloric. And that seems to be, be going away. But there does seem to be a point at which the, the government itself had also kind of run out of resources uh, and run out of spirit, right? It seems like the world around Coop and Murph is, is despirited. Right. They're they're enervated in a way that those characters aren't. 
I like uh, specifically the reference to education where they're like, we don't need engineers. We need farmers. That's what's valued. So that the fact that the daughter was actually smart was almost like a disadvantage. And she's preaching these crazy ideas of how they went to the moon where they're pretty much writing that off in the new textbooks as uh, fiction. So it's, it's interesting to see how they're changing the past to fit the current dialogue. As an engineer, that statement didn't make very much sense to me because farming technique can be just as important as as the farming. So it was it was a typical no. It, also, isn't it a lot of engineering? Matthew McConaughey made his own yeah, machines, yeah. like do what he wanted. So, <laughs> um, but typical Nolan logic that doesn't really add up if you start thinking about it too much. There's a bunch of that in this movie, but we probably will address some of that. I just wanted to put a circle around something. What what is it that doesn't make sense um, about this? Um, Engineers aren't valuable. Right. Oh, yeah. Or they just weren't, yeah, being uh, valued. Yeah, it's not like, you know, they are in charge and know what's best, right? It's like the state of the world is so bad that, you know, that's the, in a way, it's a little, um, you can see this is also maybe like a precursor to something like Snowpiercer, where if you just like uh, position off the rest of people, they can kind of like keep believing cargo cult, whatever they'd like in order to uh, maybe go forward, you know, just a little bit. They can just make up the history that they're going to tell, and it's almost nihilistic the, uh, that they don't care about the truth of it. Yeah, I, I, it's also they're trying to, it, it seems like there's a clash between this desire to strive and create and the desire to survive. And I think one of the things the movie is saying is that those are actually those are bound objectives. The desire to survive and the desire to create, to, to innovate are the same thing. And this world has, in, in the face of uh, a great challenge, has taken those two factors and divorced them from one another. That's a redundant statement, but divorce them. Um, and so that we see that's the major tension on earth is between we just have to keep everybody safe and we have to say the story that we need to keep everyone safe, which is a little different from Snowpiercer because Snowpiercer is fairly malicious. This world seems to be lying almost out of desperation, right? There's no one in control. Yeah, well, they both main, yeah, they're maintaining a status quo. That's right. I, yeah. What it is, is it's just a lie of the cult. Um, in order to maintain the power structure. That's all I mean. It's that they'll say whatever they need to do to get people to keep growing food. Even if the Titanic is going down, they'll never say that. They'll just take mm -hmm. all the corn along and then have a secret base where, you know, 10 people get to like live the rest of their lives, you know, until everything goes away. Like it's not a grand plan. It's just uh, the lie of the system. Yeah. I also, I don't know. Did you get, did you get the impression, Nate, that there was like a system at work? Part of the dystopia for me was that there that there was the remnants of a system that was desperate to find order yeah that, yeah that, that, that's uh, it i mean yeah it's just mm -hmm. it's just a stupid idiocracy at that point where it's like mm -hmm. things are just going to keep running down and uh you know the we're still going to dress up in blouses and suits but really it's um not adaptable uh it, mm -hmm. or it's not a, it's not a, it's it's not sufficient uh, it may be necessary yeah. to do these things, but um, it's kind of a, a head in the sand um, world that's coming on. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as it just like goes back down to primeval man, basically, it's just like you imagine that their goal is just to slope back down into whatever they can and like back away from all the structure of society. 
It's just to keep people civilized. Listen, slowly we're eroding. The world is not going to support us anymore. But if we give you this false hope along the way, eh, you'll keep doing what you need to do to survive. So it's, it's, it's not to go back to my favorite Mad Max you know, reference here. It's preventing that full breakdown. It's yeah, and it's. I think again for me, the difference between Mad Max, Snowpiercer, and this is that, and I think this is really key to the, the to the character of Cooper, is that it isn't it isn't a mendacious system based upon cruelty. Its mendaciousness is based upon the paralysis of despair. Right, the system itself has despaired of itself and of the people that it used to be responsible for. It still claims that responsibility, but it it no longer has any energy, right? Um, and it can't produce it for people. It feels more like the Postman than THX. I wish I remembered the Postman. <laughs> <laughs> the postman is a slightly advanced future where they're basically recreating civilization uh, with the bare bones of communication mm-hmm. being a postman or simple trades and farming is that right it's mm-hmm. not a water world uh no not a water world yeah um that's where he that is might have been a better yeah <laughs> <laughs> that might have been a better comparison it's more water world than thx mm-hmm. yeah and maybe we can talk more about this i see the distinction uh that that you're trying to make and i think that the so the movie as a authorial point of view has a, an idea about things you know, it has uh, who it considers its heroes and things like that and its own vision about uh, science and the future and the way things are going to go, right? Like, it seems mm-hmm. to have written out that the Earth can do it uh, versus something like uh, Snowpiercer, which is that that's at, like the Earth actually can do it at the end. The lie is that it can't do it. So it depends mm-hmm. on what's true or not in order to make these characters moves heroic. For example, if the mm-hmm. Earth can be saved and they keep going to, you know, throw the empire into the stars, then it seems awfully wasteful and destructive. And you imagine that even though there's a ship in the stars, there's still like a Mad Max on Earth for the dying days, you know, um, or, uh, you know, they really have to get out there, Battlestar Galactica and make a new go for humanity. Um, it, it, but it depends on what the story seems to be saying in order for these things. Um, so we might talk abstractly about the different ideas that people have in science fiction about, you know, is a utopia possible? Is it only dystopia? Is everything ultimately going to burn out and then bounce back or whatever? Um, uh, but yeah, this, this movie has certain ideas. Um, but it's interesting, like Cooper, who wants to be an explorer, and the other uh, opposing view is that there should be caretaking. And he's like, well, we should be getting out there. And then like, we'll should be taking care of what we have. That's a real worldview, uh, you know, fight. But in the movie has something to say about it. You know, it sides with exploration, it seems, mm-hmm. um, metaphysically. It's time for question two. During the second act of the movie, Cooper and his adventurers fly down to a planet with giant tidal waves. How are they able to use the engine that is flooded to escape locked in there's a theme in this movie where they they, they kind of show it i don't know over and over again they kind of beat you over the head with it where cooper's like well we're gonna improvise like when when there's the flat tire and they're like what are we gonna do that was the flat like well we're improvised we're gonna figure it out we're gonna come up with the way to solve this and then it doesn't solve the flat tire problem though but <laughs> <laughs> no, but he gets a drone <laughs> yeah yeah 
So this happens again in, in Act 2. I'm trying to remember here. I thought it just dried. Oh, that would have taken 45 minutes to an hour, which would have been like seven years. <laughs> Good recall. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, if you guys remember the scene, it's almost dry, but it's not quite dry enough. And the wave's coming. And Why are you giving so many hits? I got this. <laughs> is, is Tars with them down there? I forget if it's Tars or the other one is like, uh, Cooper, you don't have any time. All right. Uh, locked in. I'm going to lock in too, sure. All right, Tom, what do you have? Uh, turn on the engine and add extra fuel. <laughs> <laughs> Nate? Uh, they combust the engine. Nice. Nick? They blast it with oxygen. And then flip it on. There we go. Points for Nick. Yeah. So he uses the oxygen in the cabin mm -hmm. to blow out the last of the water to get it as dry as possible and to spark the engine. So he uses that extra oxygen in there to to get it going. So I don't, is oxygen fuel? Eh, that's a weird question. No, that's Tom. good. No, know. that's uh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. that's some good MacGyvering. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so I I love the adventure part of this movie. I really think this is why this movie works. The first act, they're setting up why they need to go on the adventure, like in The Hobbit, right? Why do they need to go? The dwarves want their treasure back, but they're in this safe, mundane world. They break that barrier into fantasy land, and now they are exploring, in this case, is it the universe? It's not the galaxy, right? It's bigger than the galaxy. Galaxies. No. It's, it's another galaxy. galaxy. Yeah. It's a new galaxy. It's another yeah. galaxy, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I just I just love the, the little adventures they went on, all the different planets. See, I actually didn't take it as an adventure film. It really made me think more of the traditional sci-fi going back to like 2001 A Space Odyssey with different segments and even the way it went from one clip to another. And then they threw in these little adventures. So to me, it was more of an homage to the old school sci-fi with elements of adventure crammed in at the end. So I'm not saying that there weren't moments, but to me, it was more callback sci-fi and then little adventures inserted, especially in the quiet of space scenes or how they didn't necessarily transition from one scene to another. We just understood time has passed and we're moving on to different things. So I'm not saying there was an adventure. I did enjoy them, specifically the water planet uh, with the play of time and all of that. But I'd say it is an adventure heavy. I think it's actually more sci-fi heavy. Well, in terms of an adventure, I mean, they, you know, they literally go on an adventure to, you know, these different worlds, to a different galaxy and all that. Um, in terms of the sort of the the kind of Joseph Campbell leaving the home and becoming a new person through the quality of the adventure, I, I do think that's there. I think that's sort of there in most narratives or, you know, most films are going to are going to have that kind of like, um, you know, kind of the the individuals remade i think the the difference here between the comparison you were making kj to the hobbit is that um is that bilbo is called and he doesn't want to go right he's not he's not equipped for this and he has to become equipped for this um cooper is called and while his his children do do put the bumper on right he he does hesitate because he does have these kids he is really the man for this job. And he's also embodying already the spirit of exploration and adventure, right? He is, he is the guy who would go on the Oregon Trail if it was that century, 
right? And and I think that where Bilbo wouldn't be, right? Bilbo, you, you'd have to you know grab Gandalf and tell him to go to Oregon, or this this metaphor is getting mixed. Um, but you know that's that I think is 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 a major difference there. In terms of two thousand one, I think it's closer to that, and Nolan has said in interviews or indirectly to people on his team that that's what what he was interested in. Uh, and two thousand one is really, I'm not quite sure what that movie is supposed to be about. I mean, I've said this on this podcast before. I just don't like 2001 very much. Um, but if we're going to put my value judgments aside, 2001 really is about the the possibility of, of transcendence, right? In, in a very general way that we can transcend this mortal coil and become something greater. Now, granted, that greater thing turns out to be a giant space baby. So I'm not entirely sure why transcendence is is so valued in that movie. Um, I think this movie is far more earthly, more grounded, and more grounded in in the humanity that surrounds us all, uh, which is why the theme ends up being this kind of idea of of love and how um, really love is that which transcends time and space. Um, Love of the people around us and the people we we like and associate with, not this otherworldly thing, right? It's, It's almost as if the the transcendence is local, right? He goes to to another galaxy in order to find this local truth. Uh, as far as an adventure goes, right? I mean, this this has got some great like Nolan set pieces, like trying to match the rotation to join a docking station. Like if you understand the mechanics of that, it's like, uh, yeah, like good dance or good fight sequences. It's like, that's actually a tough trick to do. That's that, that would be hard to do that. Actually. I can imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then you're like, wait, okay. So, and then you're watching it and then, you know, it plays out in that really tense way that Nolan's action does like letting you feel it get closer, like creaking and, you know, uh, building up and uh, you don't know if it's all going to blow apart or not. Um, so yeah. Uh, and then of course, you know, uh, the waves were great. Um, uh, you get, you got to love little thruster moving you around action, you know, um, <laughs> and the music, the music is phenomenal throughout all. Yes. Of I'd agree. Scenes. Oof. Yeah, yeah. I'd agree. The visuals are very good too, Oof, especially in space. Movie, the way the corn looks, the space, the dust. I, yeah, the I like how you started with corn. corn. Yeah. <laughs> the, the corn is the best I've ever seen corn. It's, <laughs> it's stunning. I really enjoy it. Is it better than a quiet place corn? <laughs> <laughs> I think visually it is, but not audioly. <laughs> <laughs> the, the corn sounds better in a quiet place. <laughs> Yeah, they should have hired the corn uh, audio engineer from the uh, from the other movie. It's a rare job, but there's not a lot of people who do it. <laughs> yeah, no, I've got a name for you. It's one man. It's his specialty. <laughs> I don't just do corn. I do all vegetables. After round one, Nick has two points. Tom's got a point. Nate, not yet, but I'm sure he'll get some in round two. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hello, everyone. We have a very special guest today. Nick. Nick, tell us what you think the purpose of Talking Pictures Trivia really is. It's just to keep people civilized. Listen, slowly we're eroding. The world is not going to support us anymore. But if we give you this false hope along the way, eh, you'll keep doing what you need to do to survive. Thank you, Nick. And remember, everyone, to rate and review Talking Pictures Trivia on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we're back. Nate? We're at the critical point of our episode where we ask the guests a key question. 
If you could watch this movie with anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Erwin Schrodinger. Go on. <laughs> I would want to walk him through after, of course, we have some babble fish that makes him understand what's going on. Uh, what's going, what Christopher Nolan has to say about science fiction and physics and uh, the conscious experience, uh, which is something that Erwin Schrodinger was on to um, in the, you know, uh, early 1900s. He was working out what uh, consciousness had to do with matter as well. And I think that he would be very interested to see it taken up and, um, yeah, would maybe be impressed by uh, the fanfare of space seen from uh, a fictional perspective that he couldn't have imagined. What was his work on, on consciousness and matter? Oh, you know, I mean, the uh, Schrodinger's cat, you know, that old <laughs> okay, guy, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, um, there, but there's also, you know, uh, he was also a spiritual person uh, and took science to be like Merv did uh, at the beginning, actually, uh, to be about what we don't know, what's going on. And so you mm -hmm. have to take something and try and figure out what's going on with it, even if it doesn't make sense or you can't explain it, you at least have to um, approach it. And um, yeah, so he, he was very interested in like, maybe what was the cat thinking in the box? Uh, per that, perhaps mm -hmm. that had a role. Perhaps consciousness had a role um, because we know it is, but we don't really have a way of understanding its relationship to matter or reality. So when, when was he alive? Would he have seen any movies? No, 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 no. Uh, he was a part of, uh, you know, Einstein and... Um, uh, uh, Wolfgang Pauli and um, uh, Niels Bohr at the uh, conference in some, you know, uh, European city of renown, and they were getting together. I mean, these guys would go on to make the atomic bomb and solve, you know, like uh, at that time, Einstein was bringing in relativity and um, not yet special relativity, I don't think. And then Pauli was talking about spin, and they all were approaching the sciences at the height of that time. And um, the observer effect and understanding, you know, uh, the wave and particle dual nature of light mm -hmm. that was first being uncovered there. And it opened up ideas into, you know, other worlds and other dimensions and um, things moving uh, uh, relative to other things and the idea of something faster than light. It, yeah, it, everything was really there. And we've kind of just been saturating in it as a pop culture for 100 years. It is interesting to bring up the cat, you know, the consciousness of the cat or or something like that um you know the the that seems to really speak to this movie especially because this idea of you know what is this thing feeling within a system that is beyond our ability to to imagine i mean we may be able to document it in certain ways and with with certain mathematical tools but it isn't comprehensible yeah, and uh, just to tie this back around, it seems like Christopher Nolan is saying that will and the experience of love as a conscious phenomenon is a part of the physical workings of the universe as we understand mm -hmm. them logically. Um, that, that, that emotion moves through time um, mm -hmm. and is relevant in some way. Yeah, it, you're willing things into existence, right? You know, the, the world is will and an idea. Um, that concept is it's not quite the same thing but this idea of the kind of like the individual asserting through passion a, a certain desire that kind of striving ends up becoming um 
part of the laws of the universe or how we can control and contend with the laws of the universe. It's time for question three. What does Cooper use to find Murph to give the quantum data from TARS? Locked in. Yes, locked in. Locked in, although the wording may have confused me, but I think I got it. (laughs) All right, Nate, what do you have? Watch. Tom? Yeah, I had the same thing, the watch. Nick? The second hand's on the watch. (laughs) So that is what uh, Cooper uses to, like, relay... To, to give well, the that's why i didn't know your okay. question was confused <laughs> you want me to ask right. it again Try i know i think again? i've got the other answer but okay hang on we'll, we'll click clear slate I, clear I, slate for everybody clear slate hang on i'm gonna I, ask it again okay what does cooper use to find murph to give the quantum data to tars to find murph to find murph to find murph okay I've, i'm locked in again <laughs> okay locked in i'm not sure on the technicality here but i'll lock in all right, Nate, what do you have? The Tesseract or advanced ship from our ancient uh, yet-to-be people uh, in space. Nick? I was going to say Tesseract. Tom? I was also going to say the Tesseract. <laughs> <laughs> Is it that wrong? Yeah. <laughs> Is it? Okay, can I? Can we? Okay, okay can it's got to be the question at this point. Can I we lock in be. something else? I'm going to yeah, lock in something I think else. I do I'm going to lock one. in something else too. No, okay. no, I'll, I'll lock in again. Okay, all right. I'll ask the question again. <laughs> it's the same question. Yeah. What does Cooper use to find Murph to give the quantum data from TARS? So he's like going through the fifth dimension or whatever. And he's like, Murph, I can't find you, Murph. What do I do? How do I find oh. you, Murph? And then TARS oh, is like, you got to do this. I thought the answer was four dimension. And Cooper goes... <laughs> Cooper's like, no, I know what it is. It's that's how I'm gonna find her. Oh, I got it locked in, locked in. <laughs> you guys, think I'm, I'm gonna, gonna lock something up. in. Okay. Yeah. What? My third answer? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you locked in, Nick. <laughs> yeah. All right, Tom. What do you have? He knocks over the the lander, the model of the lander shuttle. Nick books in the library nate love yes he uses oh, love to find Murph. grant was right it's love oh my god it's all you guys were talking about during the guest question <laughs> yeah oh my gosh it was love this third act it, it was visually all right but man good thing the first two acts are incredible because this third act Last think of the third, right? No, it, this is the thing that always like it, it. It was a strong movie until like the end. It's just like okay. I think it's great and wonderful. Uh, well, I mean, as far as science fiction goes, I think Christopher Nolan is on record for saying that this is uh, scientifically accurate. Now, there's so many things of interest uh, <laughs> that uh, and, and see. Oh, well, then here, we, yeah, then it would be nice to have maybe some substantive things to go off of rather than like. Uh, you know, a, a general impression. But uh, if you take certain things to be the case, um, that uh, there's another dimensionality, uh, that there are future people time traveling, um, you know, these are actual suggestions for how things work. Like they're a mechanic that is a guess or a 
prediction at what's going on, or at least uh, the what if of it is trying to play out. And there's a lot of interesting um, ideas behind other life in the stars. You know, that was at the beginning of this, uh, who are they? That was the question. There's a, a way to get to another galaxy that's not natural. It's, uh, it shows intelligence having made it. Um, that is an interesting question that is legit right now. And uh, the nature of another higher power, um, I think is really interesting too. Um, especially if we talk about, uh, you know, how they are uh, communicating, um, being able to put someone, uh, move someone through time. I, I, I mean, the, the third act has uh, a solid time machine mechanic to it. It allows him to interact with himself. He can't control, he can't make things different. And this is where Tenet comes in. What he explored in Interstellar is an extension of his time travel uh thinking in uh, Tenet as well, that there are uh, parallel things that can interact uh, with one another, but you're not necessarily making a new one. Whatever happened, happened, but you can influence uh, the past. And willpower is a part of that as well. Spoiler for Tenet. Um, so it's just as far as science fiction goes, which at its best is looking for the way things might be uh, theoretically, um, this is a pretty interesting shot at what's going on. Yeah, I, I will give you, how else is he going to end it? And it, it was, as again, it was visually nice. And I, I think it shows some of Christopher Nolan's uh, shortfallings um, with his logic. But I do also like uh, any time travel movie where the ink is dry. So I, I also will say that I did like that aspect of this. Yeah, well, what's uh, illogical about it? You know, um, I maybe like, what's the uh, the argument? I guess one of the things he says, one of the things that Cooper says is, or maybe Tars says it, is the fifth dimensional beings made a spot where your three-dimensional body could travel around and move. And maybe, but and it had to put something on the screen so we could see it. And we needed something identifiable that was Cooper. But I, I don't think that would resolve that way. And I mean, who am I? I don't know. But I, I think it was silly to kind of go in this direction for this movie to begin with. Can I interject here? Because one thing I'm a little confused about in, in this conversation is um, they're us, right? The fifth dimensional beings are humans. Isn't yeah, that what we learn in the end? Yeah, yeah the right. Suggest, it may not be literally Cooper, but it might be a descendant of Cooper that was able to well, set this up. Yeah, but it, it's, it's, not a, it's not a higher being. Ultimately. Well, I, what I mean is um, a higher power, uh, like in a... Um, uh, apex kind of situation. Technologically, they can do things that mm -hmm. you can't. They have more power. They're intelligent. They're mm -hmm. a higher power. It doesn't have to be a deification. Um, and, or, yeah, you know, or a, a better, you know, a, a close encounters of the third kind. Yeah, but but I think the fact that it's revealed they are us, right? That they're not. Um, what happens in the end, and and we'll put some of the logic aside. I mean, I, you know, I, I actually really didn't have I, I really liked the the visuals of the last i actually have a lot of trouble with the first two acts and the third act i'm i'm, I'm a lot better with um you know so i kind of agree with you nate i think that the, the last act works a lot better um but i i think what what's so surprising about or, or what's surprising is the right word what's nice and what fits about finding out that these aren't something else this isn't other this is us this is something that we create and that 
they've created it so that we can, or so that specifically Cooper can communicate through a token of his affection to his daughter to allow humans to survive. Um, I think that ends up being somewhat the point of the movie is, is that this incredible adventure and this, this scientific um, stuff that's, you know, supposedly possible, I, I, you know, I don't think you're falling into a black hole and, and coming out, dude, but you know, what, whatever. Um, I, I think what ends up being surprising in the end there is that again, it is these kind of personal one-on-one -on -one relationships that is the transcendent. I, I think I've said this probably before already, but I think the fact that what we learn is that they're not different, but they're us, you know, later on, that they're a lot closer to us than, than was suggested at the, the top of the film. Yes, and they're trying to look out for us retroactively through time. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It's time for question four. What is the name of the place where Cooper wakes up in the epilogue? Locked in. Uh, locked in? Locked in. All right, Nate, what do you have? Uh, it's like the endurance constant spaceship thing. Hospital. Tom? Uh, Cooper Station. Nick? Yeah, the hospital in Cooper. I, I didn't know it was a station, but it was called Cooper. C Cooper something, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, points to Nick and Tom. Yes, Cooper Station. I So I didn't like the third act that much, but this epilogue, I thought it was great, right? Like we finished the story and now we're, we're, we're literally giving hope for humanity through um, Cooper Station and all the progress that have been made while he was gone. And then he once again breaks free and gets to go explore the, the universe. What do you guys think of the final note of this movie? I'm not fond of the epilogue. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I, you know, I, um, part of it is I, I think the character of Murph is, um, makes very little sense. And I think the epilogue added to, to that, to my confusion about, uh, what her kind of central motivations are and how realistic those central motivations uh, uh, come out. Um, th apparently, this grown, brilliant woman has been walking around her childhood and adult life sulking that her dad left her, like, you know, like she's t perpetually 12 years old. And then when he finally gets back, she goes, oh, well, you know, you really shouldn't see me die. And, and then he just leaves. And she's surrounded by relatives who are probably his relatives too, if logic holds, who seem to have no interest whatsoever in the fact that they're, you know, great-great-grandfather. They, they just walk yeah, away. Yeah. like a legend yeah. of, of this, yeah. this world. And they just, nobody, nobody yeah. looks at him twice. <laughs> and um, he doesn't you know. want to meet them either. <laughs> yeah. Wait, where's my daughter? Okay, she's there. <laughs> yeah so I, I you know again this whole thing about coming about this kind of connection of you know about love is part of the physical world and shapes the physical world through the the use of will seems to just kind of fall out the bottom when she's just like I knew my dad would come back okay you know you, you really shouldn't see me die I'll, uh, you know bye <laughs> and, that, and that's it the whole family dynamic though throughout the movie especially the daughter 
really kind of frustrated me. Yes, I understand you're upset your dad's leaving for some higher purpose that you don't quite get at that time. But she continued to like into her adulthood to still not communicate with her dad. It wasn't like a few weeks. It was like a long time that she still held this grudge. And then later, as Tom says, it's like, oh, now I get it. Yeah, go do your thing. You know? Well, in typical known fashion, he was also trying to tie it back to what uh, Dr. Mann was saying on his planet. That evolution makes it so the last thing we see are kids or like he was trying to tie it back to that. It just it had no heart. Like a lot of Nolan stuff, everybody kind of felt robotic when they were discussing that aspect of this. Um, I'd say the robots had more heart than the people. Yeah. <laughs> well, it depends on their heart setting, I guess. That's true. 90%. <laughs> Is that heart setting 90%? Yeah. I, I mean, there's uh, just as far as like what Cooper's doing, it's uh, yeah, like it, he always wanted to leave and he gets permission at the end to do it, you know, and it's an extraordinary situation. Uh, you know, I think it's pretty fascinating because it's, a, I mean, it's a fictionalization of the thought experiment about the two twins and one goes you know, at the speed of light. And so it is interesting thematically to see a uh, father younger than his daughter. Um, though, you know, it's, it's an, you know, an impossible thing to believe. And yeah, Nolan's movies don't have a lot of um, uh, gushing emotion um, uh, between people uh, or a lot of warmth, but. Um, it's interesting what you said he had permission because he did not have permission to take that ship. He definitely broke, broke, like he stole it to get out, but he did have permission from Murph. So I think maybe that's oh, okay. why this was important, right? Yeah, that's what, that's how I mean. And also because he left her in the first place. And, um, you know, it, it's a little interesting because, you know, if he would have listened at the beginning, stay, you know, it was like, you don't need to, um, uh, to do this. So I haven't figured that quite out because the movie seems to be having it both ways. If mm -hmm. he had to have gone in order to... Uh, go forward in the future from that early moment. And um, well, I think he was confused at that point, right? So he thought, oh, why don't I just tell myself to stay and that'll solve this, but it wouldn't have, but he didn't. Yeah, know yeah, that. that's, I think that's right. Yeah, but it already happened and it always will happen. The ink yeah. is dry. But, but then what we don't know as an audience is that um, he can write forward into the future and have an ongoing dialogue with her as an adult, um, you know, throughout time. Uh, and, you know, right up until they can meet together at the other end of a portal or whatever. So that's, uh, that's the way time travel, like the mechanics are still there. And we've just seen the first part of it, but we don't get privy to her 30s and 40s and 50s, presumably taking notes down um, as he's in this Tesseract. So congratulations, Nick, for taking down this episode. Four points for Nick, three for Tom, two for Nate. Well done. Yay. Thank you, thank you. you. It's time for Movie Rent. So the one thing I wanted to say about this film, there's elements that I enjoy. I don't necessarily enjoy the whole film, but one of the things that I enjoyed the most that he played with was time. That was one of the things that intrigued me the most, whether it was that water planet with the seven years or just how time played into space travel. Not necessarily the fourth dimension, fifth dimension, whatever that is, but the actual flow of trying to turn real life physics into sci-fi applications. So I don't know if I was alone on that, but I really did enjoy that element of this film. So before we get into that, which could be interesting. Yeah. You know, one thing I really liked about this movie is we didn't have a training montage before they 
before he became an astronaut and got up into space. That was great. They just had the countdown. What didn't make a lot of sense is how many times the astronauts had to sit around and explain to each other how physics worked. And how did they not realize before they got down to the planet that the person had only been there for an hour or two? Why was that surprising to them only after they got back? So yes, I, I do enjoy the way he, he played with time because I, I, one of the scenes that it's really corny, but I love it, is when he comes back and he watches those videos and you're going through his, his kid's life. It, it's it, emotional, actually. Oh, it gets me every time. Um, but how did they not know that, I forget what her name was, the scientist that went down. Had Bran. Down there. Uh, uh, not yeah, Bran. Amelia Bran. Well, Bran is Anne Hathaway. Oh, um, Edward's? Was, oh, no. The one went down to the Yeah, the other guy. The guy with the beard. Nope. So oh. would you talk about the female who drowned? Yes. Oh, yeah. oh, the first time. Okay. Right. Got it. How did they not realize she had only been there for a few hours? Like nobody is going up into space and getting it that far without doing that calculation before they. They said yeah. they should have known, but they also said these people only had experienced simulations and didn't have a lot of real world experience. I do get what you're saying. That I thought you were going down the road of how much time elapsed because the way Nolan cuts this film, there's more time going on than we're seeing. So that's why they're one hour for seven years turned into actually i can tell you it turned into 23 years four months and eight days yeah i, I think there's a problem there and there's also a shorthand um the, the shorthand is that we need to explain this to the audience so people have to sit around and explain it to each other in circumstances in which people normally wouldn't explain something this is kind of an old trope this you know for the audience a, yeah. yeah, it's a cheap writing trick. Um, I, I think the, the which which isn't not a problem. It's still a problem, but I whatever, I can kind of get over it. I think the, the more substantial problem is that the movie has is advertising itself as being uh, devoted to accurate science, that what you're seeing is something that really could happen, even though it's, it's not entirely true. Um, and it wants to, and it seems to aggressively put that forward. It seems to put forward the fact that this was signed off by Kip Thorne, actually was conceived of by Kip Thorne. And we have this you know, Nobel Prize winning physicist who's come in and provided us the, the real science fiction. And one of the problems with that is the, those theories are fascinating, you know, the, the theories of general relativity, the brain theory that he's using to explain the fourth and fifth dimension. They're very interesting. They're far more interesting just reading about them on their own than kind of inserted into the movie to help us, you know, to, to, to advertise to us how much research they did or, or how esteemed their producer is. And um, it, I, I think a lot of times it ends up distracting from the push and energy of the movie, which really is about, uh, you know, finding home again and exploration and how exploration and finding home are not different things. They don't need to be different things. Um, but having, making sure that, you know, the science is really possible is like after a while, you end up getting a ton of, a ton of scenes where people sit around and go gargantua. That's what we call it. It it is the size of blah blah blah. You know, that, that's, that's why I. But that's why I thought 
this lean more to the old school sci-fis because they had more of that versus explaining an action adventure. We did have action adventure put into the later parts of this, you know, in the, in the different acts KJ was talking about in the middle, I should say, but because they lean so heavily on science, that's why I felt it was a callback to things like 2001 space Odyssey. by the way, when you mentioned before that, that was an inspiration. I didn't do any of that research before, but it made me think of that. So that does not shock me one bit. Well, can we, I, I'm Nate, you had mentioned this about looking at this film in the context of other science fiction. And Nick, you've brought it up a number of times. Can we do that right now? I mean, what- That's yeah, what the rant's all about. Yeah, because for me, like the science-ness of it is very different from 2001. I think the stillness and the quietness of it, as well as the That's use of true. music is reminiscent, yes. as well as the type of effect he's using. He's using more practical effects than computer-generated ones. And it's but gorgeous when that ship is going out against the space landscape, similar mm -hmm. to 2001, where it's just visually, it's stunning. Yeah, um, it, it has a kind of, they both are, I think 2001's more interested in kind of the, the the ballet of ships than this, but they're both there. But I didn't find 2001 to be particularly techno babbly, right? Or or science fiction babbly? Or babbly. There, there's one uh, common thread and they have divergent paths in 2001 and this. Uh, but the thing they have in common is a advanced intelligent monolith left for us. Mm -hmm. That's the where, the, now uh, 2001 doesn't say that they're us. Uh, Interstellar says that they're us. That's their postulate. Before we knew that they were us, it could have been imagined that it was another alien race. That's another yet science fiction. That's not an interstellar, but that just if you plug that in, that would be another theory for mm -hmm. what's going on. Um, you they know, call it they, the, you know, the, early yeah. in the movie. Yeah. And, and, you know, and one might wonder, oh, who are they? You do, you're supposed to. And then it's, oh, that they're us. Uh, well, that's the answer for, that the movie gives. Now, for science fiction, uh, there's we don't know, so there's other answers possible too, um, and I think that those are interesting um, as just a starting point, maybe. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is like science fiction, um, the the kind of the breadth of the worlds in which science fiction typically take, typically takes place, uh, even though it's sciencey because science fiction that it's 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 always positing a they or are often positing a they it can be i mean if you look at battlestar galactica mm -hmm. there is a they and they seem to be what we would understand as gods mm -hmm. um now i don't quite you know like that uh ending so much but it <laughs> metaphysically makes everything work um there is a conscious uh creator with a character and a personality though that's an mm -hmm. interesting posit Others, you know, other science fiction doesn't posit that, you know, um, it, it could be, uh, you know, are the things in the sky us from the future? Is it another thing? Is it, uh, you know, some other thing even beyond? Um, and it's trying to grapple with what that is. This also makes me think of a prior film we, we went over on an episode called Solaris, in which it was almost yeah. a planet yeah, yeah, yeah. entity or such yes. that had yes. that same drive yeah yeah so that so that postulation is for aliens uh some other life that's not maybe it's connected with us in a larger cosmic biosphere but it is unknown to us uh because it's just larger and like you know um it's as weird to us as like uh, us are to like 
dolphins or things at the bottom of the sea. If we go down there, it's not ever supposed to see us really. Uh, it would be alien. And that's what Solaris kind of offers is that, you know, they find other life. Yeah. And, and Solaris ends up being inscrutable. It can't be explained, right? It does things. It acts in such a way that we never, like you're saying, if, if well, dolphins saw us, they wouldn't. Well, so one thing that there's a thread here actually that just emerged. So it's interesting that you say that. And um, uh, this isn't quite a challenge, but just getting to the meat of it, what's Solaris seem the planet Solaris uh, communicates psychically and through dreams and altering reality. Now, it's not clear what it's trying to say, but it is trying to communicate and say something. This is very similar to the Orson Scott card uh, monsters that were being fought whenever they were also trying to communicate peace in dreams. Uh, in this movie, we have it. Uh, there's, um, you know, communication across, uh, you know, time, uh, communication across like dreams, like the psychic ability of things uh, is interesting just in this realm um, of science fiction. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's interesting with Solaris because it we're not really sure, and this may be actually coming from the book, which which I read, uh, is that than the movie, but I'm, I'm kind of mixing them up now, is that with Solaris, we end up not knowing if they're even trying to communicate. That one of the characters ends up saying, it's like, I, they, this thing, whatever it is, or if it's a they, whatever they are, it's, it may not even realize we're here. It may just be responding oh, that's to the environment. Yeah. And, and so I think for me, looking at Solaris and then looking at, at this film, is there, um, they're incredibly divergent in the sense that uh, Solaris posits absolute mystery, right? That there is something that we are, we are not meant to understand. We're not designed to understand it, right? And we never will. We never will. And like you're saying with the dolphin, right? With you swim to the ocean, the bottom of the ocean, you see the dolphin. I don't know if dolphins are in the bottom of the ocean. I don't. Know yeah, yeah, yeah. But whatever. But you know, they, the the dolphin will never understand the thing it is seeing. It's, it will never understand the scuba diver, right? And, and we're kind of that way with Solaris. I think what is nice about this movie to kind of develop a, a through line between Solaris to, to this film is that in Solaris, the, the unknown is horrifying. It, it ends up, the consequence of the unknown is that it ruins these people. It just physically and psychologically harms them. With this movie, the unknown is the way out it's the way to salvation right and in the end when you, what you were talking about with with murph giving cooper permission to explore go out and find her rescue her like he's now free because he's able to explore without without the kind of emotional weight of leaving of abandoning his children right that the unknown the the always horizon that science fiction offers us has become a means by which cooper can be free for our friends in the space station overlooking Solaris, the unknown is a reminder of their smallness, of their inability to know. Yeah, and that brings us back to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where Richard Dreyfuss leaves his family behind to go into the unknown. Although I don't know that he had permission exactly, but... <laughs> and neither did Cooper, yeah? <laughs> well, no, I think he... In the pulled. beginning... In the yeah. beginning, in the beginning, when he when he left his family, mm -hmm. Dreyfus didn't even care. He's like, I'm going. <laughs> I'd like to once again congratulate our winner in the most humble way possible because it's me, Nick. 
<laughs> Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. What is your favorite Nolan movie and why? Let's continue the conversation on Twitter at Talking Studios. Have additional thoughts? Email us at TalkingPicturesTrivia at gmail.com or give us a call at 201-467-8679 for a chance to be featured on one of our future From the Listeners episodes. Thanks again, Nate, for joining us today. Where can people find you? Thank you. Oh, uh, you know, if you're around Charlotte, uh, walking around a park, uh, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, Five Fake is a podcast. You can listen to it, P-H-I-F-I-C. Uh, we talk about books. And uh, thank you guys for having me. This has been fun. Oh, no, it was great having you on, uh, Nate. Yeah, thanks for coming, Nate. You can find me on Twitter at ThomasLayman15. And you can find me on Twitter at KJ1000. I can also be found on Twitter at The Nicknamed. Join us next time as we continue our Guilty Pleasure series and we discuss Tom's Guilty Pleasure from 1983, Videodrome. First watch for me, I've already been warned. Stay tuned for our first impressions of Videodrome. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, so Tom recommended Videodrome, and I had not seen it. I'd, I'd heard of Cronenberg, but I'd not seen a Cronenberg. So I decided to put it on, and I got to about the scene with the ear. And I, I stopped it. I took a break. I needed a break. And then I watched this movie in like 10 or 20-minute segments over like a month because it was it's, it's tough to stomach. There's a, lot, there's a lot going on in this movie. And then I watched it again kind of all the way through. Um, but yeah, I, I, what'd you guys, how would you guys think? <laughs> I um, originally saw this in a philosophy class in graduate school. It was a lit class, but philosophy and film. Um, and the, the class was a summer class on like, geez, Thursday night or something like that. And what it would be is the class would go for two and a half hours to like 8.30 or something. And then after that, he wanted us to stay in the room and watch the movie at, together as a group. Um, and that would be followed. So I'd finish up by 11, 1130, and I would be followed by a two and a half hour subway ride home from the Bronx. <laughs> so Wow. Yeah. So I saw this move and then work at nine the next day. And he also wanted us to do homework right after. He liked that kind of um, frantic state. Uh, he wanted the students to be kind of frantic all the time. Um, and, and so, you know, the kind of the the uh, the effort to do the work as well as to transport myself sort of felt um, like a hallucination much like I started to, you know, <laughs> start to see things much in the same way the character did because I'm just like, you know, in this like really bad area in the Bronx at like midnight trying to get home so I could write a paper about, you know, like the, the Freudian effect in the, the, in the film. So, you know, it was, uh, and I also couldn't watch the ear scene either <laughs> this time or the last time or any time, even though I've seen this movie a number of times. So this isn't the movie I thought I was going to see because I know Cronenberg does a lot with body heart. This is the first time I've seen a Cronenberg and I was excited to see it, but 
I saw it after Tom and KJ had already started to watch it. And now I know why I kind of had a false interpretation of what I was about to witness because I have a feeling that they had both gotten through the ear part uh, that KJ is referring to and Tom is referring to. And I thought the whole movie was just going to be something to gross me out. So I will say in some regards, I'm pleasantly surprised. It isn't as horrid as I thought it was going to be. It is out there, but I thought it was getting to something completely different. What I will say too, is I saw this movie in three parts. The first part, and roughly 30 minutes each, I was confused on what the heck I was watching because that's where a lot of this gross stuff or SM type stuff or just really out there type stuff was. The second watching of the middle, I actually started to really enjoy this movie because I saw they were going somewhere a little deeper or I thought they were. I wanted to know more about these mysteries or what really was going on. And then the third part was just kind of crazy and I didn't really get all the resolutions that I was hoping to get, but it happened. So I'm happy I saw my first Cronenberg. I thought it was going to be a lot more gross because they kind of set the stage for that before I watched it but it is an interesting watch. Uh, so yeah, this is the first time I've seen this movie, but I have seen, uh, I believe five other Cronenbergs. Um, the fly was the only one that I remember with like noticeable horror. So I also saw uh, the dead zone existence, uh, history of violence, uh, Eastern promises. I mean, the history of violence and Eastern promises were very violent, but I don't remember there wasn't any like grotesque body horror that I remember. Um, so yeah, I, I was kind of expecting, you know, what I saw in the fly and it had been a while since I saw it, but um, it's, it's gross, but it, that the stuff that's extreme is it's almost kind of funny to me. It's like watching, I think it was uh, the evil dead where it's so unrealistic looking that it, it doesn't even bother me that much. But the ear, uh, and, and I assume you, you mean the, the piercing of the ear. Which, yes, the piercing of the yeah, ear, yes. Which That's is really, what we meant, yeah, yes. Which is really, <laughs> um, it, it's funny because it's, like, I found it hard to watch, but I imagine her ears were already pierced, and it's probably not, you know, you could use an actual uh, needle and, you know, put some fake blood, and it's like, it looks real, and it could, you know, actually be real going through her ear if it's pierced already but um so i just find it funny that it's that one thing that's shouldn't it, it shouldn't really be that horrible to watch but that's that was the one thing that i you know made me cringe the most and i think you know same with you guys it's probably like the most practical effect of all the effects that were done in the movie i would imagine i also i also had some halibut that's i ate some halibut this time <laughs> <laughs> during the ear scene tom i i i closed my eyes and swallowed some halibut Ugh. let's not let's not leave that in that came out not like I 